are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Mike Kalameko here. You're listening to Mike Kalameko's Food Talk on Heritage Radio Network. Got a good show lined up. Beautiful spring day here in Manhattan today. It was a really amazing Memorial Day weekend. Beautiful. That used to be, I used to have a restaurant at the beach, and that was the first real viable business weekend of the season. And you really hoped the weather was good because it was your first chance to make some money before you got into June because you wouldn't see that kind of money again until later in June or even July. And it always seems like we always got skunked with uh, that weekend not being great. But this was picture-perfect weather up and down the East Coast. It was great. Cooled off a little bit this week. It just feels super out there. A um, couple things going on. We... You're going to do a piece in a couple of weeks. I read this thing in the Times yesterday. It's funny because we sort of trade fours them, and I were all covering the same scene. And it was about this, just as everybody was talking about the sort of the death of uh, Eastern European Jewish food in New York City. Of course, you know, we've watched deli after deli close. But what are we left with now? Carnegie, Katz's, and what's Second Avenue or a semblance thereof? Um, so hope springs eternal. So there's all sorts of new stuff going on down in the Lower East Side. Ross and Daughters just opened a cafe. There's a great bagel place on Grand Street, the middle of Little Italy, that's great. Black Seed Bagel, which is those wonderful wood-fired bagels I got a chance to try a few weeks ago. They were really, really good on Elizabeth Street. Um, and Bread's Bakery. If you haven't been there, try this place. Bread's Bakery is right off Union Square. I think it's 16th Street, just to the west of the square. And it's a great, great, great bakery with probably the best rugula I've ever had. And their babka is like everybody's best babka in the world. Reason enough <laughs> to go visit them. Um, bake them fresh every day, all day long. Yeah, I ate too much of that stuff yesterday, so I ran across the bridge today. Um, tonight, what's going on? Brookfield. Bro- yeah, Brookfield's a real estate company. They're opening up another food court. This is the second big one to open up in New York called Hudson Eats on Vesey Street all the way downtown. Uh, the, there's another one that just opened up called Gotham West that's on 11th between 44th and 45th that's really interesting. So I guess this is the new trend, right? Realtors are looking for spaces in their building where they could do food but not a single restaurant, and they're inviting lots and lots and lots of talent to come in and do them. So I'll report back on the um, Hudson Eats thing tonight. Then we're going to head over to North End Grill, which was Floyd Cordoza's last gig with Danny Meyer. Um, not my favorite room, really. Kind of feels like it's you know you're part of that whole Goldman Sachs thing down there. Sort of like that's their reason to be. Um, it's a very corporate crowd. It's a very corporate scene. It's a very corporate part of New York. Hey, but they have to eat too, right? Um, but Eric Korsh is the new chef. I like Eric. He's been there about a month. I remember him and his wife when they ran Calliope, which is a great little restaurant in the East Village. Sadly, short lived. So report back next week on that. Here's what's up with the show today. Got a couple of guests coming in who do some really interesting work. Um, Neil Burmasp and his wife Saunders, is that correct? Yes. Pronunciation. The organization is called Streets International. We're going to have the first 15, 20 minutes straight conversation on that. And then I've got another guest coming in at the bottom of the hour, probably right after the break, Chris Pessor, who is the uh, founder, one of the owners of Verity Wines. I met him at Pearl and Ash during one of those epic nights when you're having a great meal and the table next to you shows up with all these bottles of wine and you start drinking their wine because they're offering you their wine. And the next thing you know, you're one big four top. And um, the wines he was pouring were insane. He's friends with Patrick Capiello, who's the sommelier at uh, Pearl and Ash. So that was fun. So I really want to talk about what he does about his portfolio. So as usual, we're going to segue into wine talk at some point. But let's take care of the first guests right now. Neil and Sandra, thanks for coming in. Thank you. So you had a big fundraiser last night at Astor. Yes, we're still recovering from this morning a little bit. Uh, I, you know, that <laughs> happens. <laughs> so tell me about 
just the 101 on Streets International. What is it? Because this thing came across my radar. It must have been your publicist. You know, everyone gets these things in sure. their inboxes, and most of the time I just kind of skim them and click delete. <laughs> and then this one, I'm like, well, this looks kind of interesting. Uh, you know, it wasn't the normal. Not. So what is, what's the concept? When did it start? Well, one of the smart parts of the concept is that we got Phil Baltz involved early on. So I think you've probably oh, heard so about Oh, so that's it. who it is. That's, that's <laughs> a great, great job getting okay, uh, he's our one of story. The, for those uh, of you who don't know, in, if you're not in the industry, Phil runs Baltz PR, uh, a big powerhouse you know, with Bullfrog and a few others, KB, in this town, in this country at this point. Um, and his wife is no... Uh, uh, Wilting flower on her side either. She's another pit. We'll talk Indeed. about her business some of the time. So, right, so Philip does your PR. That's how yes. I heard about it. But yes. so, but tell me about what you guys do and how you got involved. Okay. We started Streets International about mm, six or seven years ago, uh, and basically what we do is we're kind of running a part culinary school, part hospitality education program, part dormitory and restaurant apprentice training restaurant in Southeast Asia and Vietnam. We're taking kids off the street, uh, kids from orphanages, kids from um, unspeakable kinds of background, traffic kids, uh, kids from leprosy village, really, really poor, disadvantaged kids, 16 to 22 years old. And we have a training program. We have an 18-month training program, very ambitious and very instruct, uh, uh, very structured. We work closely with a lot of our colleagues and friends at ICE in developing our curriculums to give you a sense of... ICE is that cooking school, if it's still on 23rd it Street. Is. Rick Smilo is the man behind it. Yes. Because it's one of those great, great schools. Yeah, one yes. of the really good, good schools. And another it should be Peter Kump, if I'm not mistaken. It was original. Back in the day. Back I in still the day, I remember Peter Kump when he was around. On the Upper East Side. Yes. And another one of the smart moves that we made early on in getting going is that Rick Smilo also is on our board and a big, big supporter. And we work closely uh, with ICE, a culinary school on 23rd, as you said. And so we're taking these these kids that, um, you know, kids that have never had enough to eat or a safe place to sleep. And over the course of our 18-month program, we house them. We have a house where the boys live, supervised house with the girls. We educate them. We have a training center with a basic teaching kitchen and classrooms. We have to teach English, so we have a 16-station computer language lab. We're doing things that nobody would normally think of doing with poor kids <laughs> uh, in terms of how ambitious we are and how much of an investment we believe and are making in them. And then they apprentice in our very popular, now very successful restaurant in Hoi An, which is a UNESCO World Heritage, very traveled site in the center of Vietnam, a 17th century seaport. And over the 18 months, the kids are in school, the same as if you went to culinary school right. here. Uh, they're learning English, and they're apprenticing in the restaurant. At the end of the, the, the period, uh, unlike other organizations doing some similar things, um, virtually 100% of our kids, and this was our objective, are going on to work at five-star resorts. The idea was... Uh, coming from the restaurant industry, I knew that a simple job in a restaurant, whether it's in New York or London or uh, Hanoi, uh, is still struggling a lot in life, as we all know in the business. And that certainly in, in international tourist areas, there are careers and great possibilities if you're working at a resort or a five-star ho hotel. And so, as I said, almost all of our kids now when they finish the program, go on to work at the Hyatt Regency in our area, the Intercontinental, et cetera, et cetera. So in a quick how, New York how, minute, how, that was how, it. So, and how many years has it been established, Streets? Well, we um, started the nonprofit about seven years ago, a little over seven years ago. This was our seventh uh, annual fundraiser. We opened, though, in Hoi An, Vietnam, It'll be five years ago this this year or this um this month actually. How did a couple of Westerners help to organize this? I mean, I'm just um I, I want to see the connective tissue, and I'm I could see you doing this in Camden or Newark, and we'd have a different conversation. But you're halfway around the world. It, it's 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 a great question. I think the the um you know we're travelers, and we've traveled as as a lot of us are, and we were particularly um, taken. With Southeast Southeast Asia, it was it, it's it's quite different than mm. our world. It looks different, it smells different. It, it's got a certain vibrancy. Certainly, being interested in food, uh, the you know I was just captivated by the markets there and the <clears throat> excuse me and all that goes with that. And so we, we we did a bunch of traveling in that part of the world because of this kind of 
um, excitement we felt for and this connectivity. It was one part. Certainly, um, we share uh, uh, we share a difficult modern history with Vietnam yeah. as as Americans, and that's part of our experience. Depending on where you are in those numbers, and the French before us, and the French yeah. before us, and and um, you know those are images that are planted, and depending yeah. on what point you came up. Yeah, I remember Life magazine covered. We all shots, do. In a know. second, when I said yeah. it, you did, and I did, and many, many of the listeners can remember that. And so there was also some somehow that played a part that that connectivity of the shared kind of this difficult shared background. Um, and I think we were looking we were looking to do something uh, something a little bit fresh and something a little bit new. And Maybe. you came out of the industry. You were both in the restaurant business before. I wasn't. Neil has the background in uh, culinary and hospitality, having owned restaurants, having taught at the Institute of Culinary Education okay. as well as NYU. And so he understood the industry. Got you. I, um, my contribution is I, uh, we both consulted. I've also, though, consulted mainly in businesses. But I understood how to put together a business, especially to how to make it scalable and um, able to expand. Um, so I brought kind of the... Also, business, listen. She was not... nuts enough to come along on the ride. Let's <laughs> we can we can. This is a casual, informal discussion. She she was just nuts enough, and we were in love enough to to continue to the ride it. together. Right. And um, as I'm not shy to to tell, you can probably tell I'm a, a New Yorker, born and raised, and I benefit and suffer from all that goes with that. One of those characteristics, as you probably well know, is a little bit of impatience and fiery spirit. And Sandra, on the other hand, um, not to speak for, comes from the Midwest, and she's got that classic, very mellow, very <laughs> laid back, patient, great qualities, I want to tell you. And so um, I got in the beginning just how difficult and impatient. I mean, we were dealing with this government, a communist government, and a developing country, and all, all that go, goes with that. And it was the beauty of her um, uh, mellow quality and patience that really I, I'm not shy to say... Uh, uh, is why we're still there. I mean, in the early days, this New Yorker would have picked up and said, Enough. forget it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and Sandra's got this very cool balance. Listen, tomorrow's another day. Let's have a glass of wine. Let's, this is, and so um, I was lucky enough and smart enough to twist her arm strongly enough, really didn't take a lot, to make sure that I had this partner there, uh, this life partner there doing it with me. Talk about the – so, I mean, I went to cooking school a million years ago. I graduated from the CIA in January of 82 um, when it was a very different school than it is today. Um, but there we basically learned classical French cuisine for two years. They, we had a little sidebar on Italian cuisine, a little sidebar on Chinese. We did a baking program, but it was pretty much straight up French, classical, the canon. What's the curricula like at your school in Vietnam? It's a, a great question. Um, if we had it here with us, uh, you would see that it mirrors very closely the curriculum that uh, was at CIA ICE. in the 80s right. and at ICE and CIA uh, uh, even today. It's full-on, full-range uh, International cooking, not just walk Asian-based cooking, um, with all you know the basics of French, Japanese, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, Italian, uh, and Asian cooking. So it's the full-on. Um, the the kids that are training to be cooks. One of the reasons the resorts like them so much, because most of the training in that part of the world, as you as you know or can imagine, is walk-based. Yeah. Wonderful cooking. Sure. And it's amazing these restaurants that you they what comes out of just a walk can come out of just a walk. It's it's amazing kind of cooking. Of yeah, course. it's kind of genius because it com it's it completely is. different paradigm from what we have. So you know, it's about getting that mise en place, about getting the cuts right, and the so the, the, much the so, oil yes. temperature correct, the in, the introduction of the ingredients in the pan, keeping that pan moving. I mean, it's literally it's, it's the ultimate one pan pickup, yeah, it, I guess, coming it, from the way we used to work. It, it, it's amazing, and that, well put. It is this right. ultimate one pan cooking, but the hotel, the major resorts, of course, they're guests. Right, they're from around the world, right, and they want more familiar food some of the time, of course. And so having uh, our, our kids and, and uh, aspiring chefs uh, that understand Western cooking, that are good with a pan and a saute and all that goes with that, right. is very important to them and difficult for them to find unless they import people from other parts of the world. So this was your point earlier when you were talking. Um, <coughs> Excuse me. It's 
cooking has become so popular in America now, part, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is television, the power of, of television. So I'm 57 years old, started cooking in junior high in the late 60s, worked my way through high school and college, well, college briefly, I wasn't much of an academic, played with music for a couple of years, went to the CIA at about 23, 24, with 10 years under my belt, and graduated and came from Philadelphia straight to Manhattan in, in 82. And then... My dream, if if you were ambitious, was to be a chef, an executive chef, maybe, sure. was what the title was. Or if you wanted to go even bigger, maybe have my own restaurant to be a, a chef proprietor. And that was it. I mean, that was as far as you could go. Uh, it, the landscape looked nothing like it did today. Now, fast forward to 2014 and 24-7 cooking shows, competitions, networks devoted to just that all over the dial. You see kids here in the States going to cooking school almost with the illusion uh, of they're going unrealistic expectation of they're going to get out. They're probably going to be a sous chef when they graduate. They'll get a chef job somewhere or the wind top chef and they'll be getting out of the back of a limo and worrying about what the design of their next tattoo. So talk a bit about what you were, I mean, because it sounds really smart what you're doing in terms of educating a specific group for a marketplace that needs those skills. They flesh that out for me a bit. Right. Well, in the planning stage, of course, one of the things that we that we understood is that in the developing countries, so-called developing poor countries like Vietnam and and, and others, um, one of the sectors of the economy of business that takes off first is tourism. Correct. You don't have to be an economist to get this, Correct. and that creates, in the most simple way, all kinds of possibilities right. and opportunities and jobs and careers. Smart, and, and they don't usually have the disconnect have, is, as you said, you know, if you're going to Hawaii or Costa Rica or Indonesia, you know, the locals tend to be very good at what they know, which is that little just, view of the world. I can work with plantains, or I can work with a fish that I'm familiar with. Right. But in, but in terms of a, a, a restaurant, a resort like the Ritz Carlton's, the Mandarins, the Hyatt's, the high end resorts right. of the world, they're going to have ten restaurants. And you're going to have everything from burgers to French to omelets. So this is where you're. This is that's what you're preparing right. them for. And, and, and that's why, when I said ambitious, um, we're doing, among other things, this f- full-on culinary training, mm-hmm. and also a part of what we're doing, um, playing on this theme or this this notion, is very extensive English language training. Because keep in mind, these kids don't speak English right. when they come to us. And here's what happens at the hotels. This is not unusual to other places. The international five star, like like the ones you've mentioned and others, the executive chef almost always European. at least, or American or Correct. Australian, Correct. I, maybe the sous chef if it's if right. it's okay. Then you have anywhere from twenty to forty cooks, who are mostly locals, could be very good cooks, hardworking, good people. Uh, they don't understand international Western, we could say cuisine, and they don't speak English. And the chefs, like we know in our area, and this is not different, there's very high turnover. They get so frustrated because no matter how good you are as an executive chef or a sous chef, you need a gang. You need a crew. You know, your prep has to be good. And here's where our kids come in. In fact, it's a little bit – it's not a problem. It's an interesting kind of challenge we're having. The, The executive chefs at the Intercontinental, the Hyatt Regency and others that we have many, many kids now at working, at coffee break – who are they sitting down with? There are 30 or 40 experienced Vietnamese chefs, none of whom speak very much, if at all, English, other than a little bit of kitchen English. During coffee break, they're sitting down with our formerly street kids, now well-trained, now speaking pretty damn good English and understanding it, to talk about the menu, because with them, they can then translate to the rest of the crew. So it's amazing for these kids. Of course, the trajectory of their careers is, we have kids who two or three years ago didn't have enough to eat, are now making salaries equivalent to college-educated English teachers in Vietnam. It's pretty amazing. It's amazing, right? How many kids in the program at any one time? Because it's a two-year program, and you're bringing them in how often? Well, we have – it's an 18-month program. Okay. And for each class, we're taking between 15 and 20 kids. But then we start another class every nine months. So we always have a more senior class and a more junior class. So we'll typically have up to 40 kids in the program at different levels at one time. And, and although the objective from the beginning, and still is, that um, all of the kids 
Um, we say kids because in Vietnam, the translation would be kids. Uh, uh, until you're married, you're still a kid in Vietnamese. So it's not, we're not politically incorrect okay. here, right. even though they're 16 to 22 year, two years old. Um, although, although our objective is for them to go on to these, the resorts, because that's where there are careers, not just jobs, right? All kinds of possibilities, as, as, as we know. Um, our restaurant has become, uh, of course, we're very proud of this, so successful, uh, and so popular that we now ask a handful of each class, right, uh, to stay on for six to nine months and work in the front of the house or the back house because we need the staff. Our original model was we would have a, a professional staff and then just the kids training and then going on. Our kids end up being so good at the end of the program, we can't find professionals as good. So we, now we keep a handful of them in the front and the back. In both front and back. It's interesting. For six to nine So months. not so different. I um. I think the whatever they call the French culinary nowadays, they have a restaurant down on West Broadway. Or um, I think that their last class, they that's what they do. Of course, it's not six months; it's probably three weeks or four right. weeks. Right. And I remember at the Culinary Institute, we had the same thing sure. with the Escoffier room. Was that was your last class before graduation, and you spent half the time in the kitchen cooking for real customers, and then to most of us dreading it because we were back-of-the-house guys. Yes. There, you'd put on your monkey suit and go in the front and try not to spill stuff all over people or right. drop plates. Right. But so, that, so you're doing that, but on a longer basis because they're so good at what they do. Correct. Correct. Tell, tell me, so the fundraiser last night was at Astor Place upstairs yes. in that great space they have. Great, charming. Yeah. Tell Beautiful. me some snippets because I wasn't there. Who was there? Was it successful? How much did you raise? It was a great party. And this is our sixth year that we've been at Aster, and they're wonderful with, with us also. So we've got great crew. We get all our staffing is our volunteers, either from Union Square Hospitality Group or the Boer Gastropub Group with the Ren and the Penrose or other places. So we have, oh, about 40 servers and then a number of chef mm-hmm. assistants all volunteering. We have great chefs. Our chefs range from uh, Danielle was there, uh, Anita Lowe was there, uh, 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 meatball guys were there. <laughs> I, I could go board. on and on yeah, and on. Yeah, yeah. We just got this great, great group. We had over 200 people. Uh, cocktail parties uh, uh, style. We showed a new... Uh, we just finished a short documentary. Um, a 10-minute documentary, which will shortly be on our website, streetsinternational.org, for people to see that tells the story in a, in a nice way. Um, we just finished a cookbook. And so we, we were... Um, kind of showcasing our new cookbook. The cookbook is interesting. That it's the, all the recipes from our, our basic evening menu. Uh, tells the story of streets. And also profiles half a dozen kids and where they are now. Well, that's my next question. So (laughs) we're going to run out of time at some point. I was trying to sort of draw the narrative tale out of this and lead us to, you know, we want to hear the success stories about this guy, this girl. So talk. I I, want to hear them. Well, we've... We've had five classes graduate already, so we're starting to see not that they're just getting jobs, because as we said, in a developing country, you know, they, they need talented staff. But what we're seeing is they're getting jobs, and they're getting the promotions. They're moving up yeah, the ranks yeah. so quickly. We've, we had one girl at the Hyatt, um, and she was the employee of the year for Hyatt and won a trip to Singapore. Here she was living on the streets of Da Nang. This is a girl from- off the streets of Da Nang three years ago. We, we, don't, we, we won't go into the details, but we're all, you can imagine what a girl living on the streets of Da Nang. And here she is, Sandra. She's the employee of the year at the Hyatt Regency. We also had another um, a young man who was our from our first class. He was actually, I think, the first one of our graduate trainees to get a job. It was as soon as he graduated, the Nam Hai in Vietnam hired him for their kitchen. And he, the Nam Hai is one of, if not the top resort in all of Vietnam. And he slowly moved up the ranks, not slowly, actually within a year, um, to, uh, I think it was like Demi Chef or something. But then he was, um, he took over as an executive chef of a restaurant in Da Nang. They had, they had seen uh, through word of mouth in the community, the, the culinary community there, had seen what he was doing and actually took him away, and he ended up being... His own restaurant. His own restaurant. And, I know, it's just... It's, and, you know, we just have a few minutes hard to ca- capture. This is a kid um, who grew up in an orphanage, 
uh, and orphanages anywhere, especially in developing countries, yeah, are not yes, pretty places. Correct, correct. If and so here's a kid, a holding cell, an orphanage. He's now executive chef and has mm-hmm. a piece of you know like all executive chefs want of a very cool uh, international restaurant uh, in Da Nang, which is the major city near where we are in the center in the airport. Those are remarkable stories. We, we, we could go on for a long time. Is anyone these. else doing similar things to what you're doing in other venues, perhaps in Jakarta, perhaps in parts of Thailand? Because there is a lot of luxury mm-hmm. tourism in yes. that part of the world. Yes. So again, the, the Ritz-Carlton, the Four Seasons, the, the high-end Hyatts, the Peninsula, they tend to open there, and they're very insular programs. They, they sort of want you to come, fly in, and not leave the compound sure, as it sure. would be. So there's everything from the poolside tiki stuff to the, you know, hopefully the Michelin starred restaurants. But right. but then the disconnect is, of course, a, can they deliver? Can they deliver? <laughs> and oftentimes, a block or two away, you have families living in abject poverty. Yes, which is always so disconcerting for me as a, as a tourist. You just sure. have this sense of. Oh, I get. I see why they don't want me to leave because this is really fucking depressing. Yeah. yeah. So, but is, is anybody doing something like this? You know, back to your um, uh, one of your first uh, good questions, which was what led us to do this. One of the things, and I'll respond to this also, that uh, that troubled me in our own travels and led to this is that yes, in a simple way, yes, there are others doing this throughout developing country, mm-hmm. the places you've mentioned, South America. But in my own travels, um, going to those places, interested and go, they were there. I don't find they weren't ambitious enough. There are simple places, simple restaurants, training to simple levels, then employing a lot of the kids. Look, there's a lot of poor kids in this world, and yeah. one shouldn't be critical of anything anybody does to help right. a kid for sure. But I felt um, that you one could be much more ambitious, and what differentiated our possibilities were we to undertake this and what led to streets in part back to your question and are other people doing it yes other people are doing it in a very simple way not leading to the possibilities that our kids now have and other people or organizations are doing it but they're not with people that have come from the industry mm. not from people who have taught or owned and operated restaurants not from people who understand business and, and, sp- and spreadsheets and I think it was that talent that we, Sandra and I, and also, you know, it takes a village. So there are a lot of people. When you, it's two of us talking. There's a gang working with us here and, and there. If you brought that expertise, you, so I don't think anybody else, we haven't come across any that's making the difference in the lives of the right. kids that we're, we're, we're making. Well, yeah, you're really taking people but, that have nothing, that are the bottom of the bottom. And and, and, and and the success story, I mean, the, the ones that graduate, the, even the ones that just just getting by, they have great jobs, they've got a roof over their head, they've got a talent, they've got a paycheck, dignity about what they're doing and the, yeah. the way that we do as craftspeople. Right. And then the ones that are a, a step above that have the chance, as you said, to, to rise up within the organization, to once they've risen, to be poached by other organizations that recognize the talent, that's great. All of that. Yeah. And, and now, um, you know, in the beginning we talked about it, what we wanted to do. And as I've said, I had a lot of sleepless nights thinking, can we really do it? You know, like with any new venture, a new restaurant, you you have the image and the concept and you hope you succeed. But now we start our seventh class. We've graduated five with virtually 100% success. And so we get it. We get it now. It's working. And, and we're now really poised to replicate and grow and develop. We're looking at other sites in Vietnam, perhaps in Hanoi, the capital. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been on the ground in Cambodia and Laos, and we're looking at possibilities there. So we see a lot of opportunity. Uh, of course, all of this takes some funding, yeah. and that's the challenge now, right. as it would be even if we're just saying, okay, let's open another restaurant, the first one. So right. that, that's our challenge. And Always, that, and that's, for everyone. And that's what we face now. But congr- I mean, th- you know, this, the statistics on American kids going to culinary schools, as you're probably well aware, uh, and back to my earlier point about going to schools for the wrong reason, half the graduating class of almost every culinary school, whether it's the CIA, Johnson Wales, ICE, French culinary, they're out of the business in three years. They go to cooking school, they incur forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 worth of debt, and get out to the business and realize oh, my God, this is really tough work. Nights, weekends, I never see my girlfriend or my poodle. I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. So, we don't, so you've got people that are super grateful to have had the opportunity and, and stick with it. Um, we won't have that problem with our right, kids. Right, um, Because now uh, they have dignity and choice in their lives. They have a full belly. 
uh, their younger brother or sister is able to stay in school as they weren't uh, uh, because they can afford it. Their uh, grandparent isn't lying in bed because they can't get the medicine they need. They're getting it now. So well, those are such compelling reasons that uh, we just don't see that problem with, with, uh, with our kids at all graduating. Gender specifics, is it half men, half women roughly in terms of students? Yeah, in a way it has to be because we are also housing them. So they're not just coming, we're taking care right. of them. We have, so we have a house for the boys, a house right. for the girls, and it's set up so that it, it's equal an equal number of each per class. Okay. Yeah, and, and that was one of the things we wanted to, we wanted to teach about, too, about equality and about boys and girls and men and women. And that, that's an underlying theme. i just tell you quickly, if, if we have time, when we started, the, the, we have more jobs than we have kids. The hotels love us. They, they get this for sure. Uh, we won an award a couple months ago in Hoi An uh, for cleanest from the government, cleanest kitchen in town. We're the only kitchen that you don't you don't just sniff and smell and look to see whether we actually date things. Amazing, right? <laughs> but that's how we're training our kids. So the ho- the hotels um, just uh, uh, just absolutely uh, love them. It's great stuff. If okay. people listening want to find out more about you, can you give us a website where they could make sure. donations, read more? At some point, get that video when you have it posted up to stream. Sure, yes. Uh, streetsinternational.org, www.streetsinternational.org. Great work that you both okay. do. I mean, it's Thank really nice you to talk to so people much. that are doing well and, and succeeding and doing well and and. You know, helping people out is great. Will you, will you be at there next year at our event? If, uh, if Philip Waltz for sure you're on <laughs> the list. to send me an email. <laughs> we'll be sure. Great. Thanks so, Thank so, you. so Thank much. Thank you for having us. My guests were Neil Burmas and his wife, Sandra. Streets International is the name of the organization. He just gave you the website. Visit them. Great people doing great work in Vietnam, a country that has known its share of difficulties over the last half a century or more, but is certainly poised for turning itself around. Congratulations again on your Thank great you. work. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thank Folks, you. We're going to take a quick spot at the bottom of the show and come back with Chris Pessor, and we're going to talk about what well, we talk about a lot on this show, and that's the world of wine today. Stay tuned, and we'll be back with that right after this. So if you want to make a great tomato sauce, where do you start? You start with great canned tomatoes. And what are the best? What's the gold standard? What are the best Italian restaurants use, you think? San Marzano tomatoes from southern Italy. You know, I've heard of San Marzano tomatoes, loved them, heard the whole legend thing, knew they were delicious, but I wanted to go visit the region. So sometime back, I don't know, 06, 07, we went to San Marzano in the middle of the packing season in August. They've got a really long growing season. Starts early spring, April, May, and runs all the way through October because the weather down there is beautiful. You're along the coastline of uh, Naples there in the shadows of Mount Vesuvius. And these are really small family farms, really small, like a half an acre, an acre apiece. And that's how they make a living is harvesting these tomatoes. But what makes them great is the typicity of everything, the style of the tomato. It's kind of a long tomato with a really thin skin, super fleshy, super sweet tasting off the vine. Uh, We can Cento San Marzano tomatoes in the prime of the season, which is August. They just slow production down, handpick everything. Those little basil leaves, yeah. They're all put in there by hand as well. Uh, it is the best canned tomato I've ever had, and you're going to love them too. There's a reason chefs love these things. They're San Marzano authorized from the beginning. The factory gets inspected every year. Hey, you want to make great tomato sauce at home? Start with great tomatoes. Cento San Marzano. That's what I use. Hey, folks, Mike Calameco here. Years back when I had my own restaurant, I had to figure out what kind of oils to use. You know, you try to make money in the restaurant business. So, uh, you know, the most expensive oil wasn't the choice, but I had to use an oil that was great, an oil that I would use at home and also for my customers. Came upon 
Colavita olive oil, um, which to this day still stands head and shoulders above everybody in that extra virgin category in the supermarket shelves. So much of the extra virgin category is dominated by labels that sound like they're Italian. You know, they end with an O or something like that. But the truth is they're tank farm blends that come out of Italy. But what's in the jar or the can is oils from all over the world that are just bought on price. It's commodity oils. Uh, Colavita is the only one that's an extra virgin that's 100% Italian origin traceable. It's a great company. They really built their brand on the U.S. market. They get the U.S. market. So if you're looking for a super extra virgin olive oil, use the one that I've been using for years on my table at home and in my restaurants, wherever I was hanging my chef's toque, and that would be Colavita Extra Virgin. True Italian, great oil. So my first trip to Portugal was 2013. It was a wine trip. A bunch of us flew over and toured the country top to bottom. Fell in love with the place. The food, the wine, the scenery, everything. Had to come back, which I did in 14, to film. And this time, eight days in country, top to bottom again. Food, wine, surfing, what's not to love? If you've never been to Portugal, it's an extraordinary place. Buffered on one side by the Atlantic Ocean, you've got great seafood, great wines growing in all those regions. You go a little inland, you've got more great more great food, incredible wine country. Of course, Port is the birthplace of Port's up the Douro. But my takeaway was, I thought I'd had a lot of varietals. Like I keep a list of 130, 135 varietals I've had over my life. Portugal has 250 of its own indigenous wine varietals. And they're killer good. A lot of them growing there for centuries. It has some of the oldest viticulture in Europe. Uh, the sparkling wines from the Bihada, the great reds coming down south from those regions. The, uh, what's not to love? Crisp whites, beautiful full-bodied reds, port wine, sparkling wine. So if you're not familiar with the wines of Portugal, next time you spot by at your local wine store, ask about them. I love them. I'm drinking a lot of them these days, and I think you will too. King Arthur Flower, established in 1790, is America's oldest flower company. They're an employee-owned company whose passion is sharing the joy of baking and inspiring bakers worldwide. When King Arthur was founded in 1790, George Washington was the newly elected president of the United States. The company was sold by the Sands family to King Arthur Flower employees in 1996. They are now an ESOP company, 100% employee-owned, with a 100% commitment to quality. Visit them at kingarthurflower.com. Welcome back. My guest is Chris Pesor. Is that correct pronunciation? Chris Desor. Desor. I, well, see, I can't, I can't read my own writing. Desor. Verity Wines. You're the founder? I'm one of them, yes. One of the founders. So, by way of full disclosure, we met as is not atypical... Um, I was out to dinner with my son, I believe, that night at one of my favorite newish restaurants, place we covered on our PBS season this year. Been a place that I try and get to, although I have said this a million times, I can't. Unfortunately, because I have to do research for what I'm going to do next season and what I'm going to film, I'm constantly forced to eat at new places all the time to see if I like them. And that means eating at old places is an indulgence and it's almost like a day off. So it kind of sucks. My favorite restaurants I don't see enough because I've got to find out what the new ones are. But anyway, the restaurant was Pearl and Ash. Uh, we've, we had uh, Richard Coe and Patrick Capiello, uh, the chef and the sommelier here in this studio a couple of weeks ago. An amazing story on the Bowery, a really difficult kitchen, great food comes out of it, uh, thanks to the chef and his ability to, to manage that, and um, the wine list is just off the charts, has been known. It's I mean, incredible. Incredible. And the place is a hangout for uh, industry types, especially wine industry types. Uh, the markups are really reasonable for the wines. The breadth of the list is extraordinary. The energy in the room is great. So you were at the next table, and you came with right. a winemaker from Minervois, south of Correct, France, Languedoc-Roussillon, yeah. um, who had some beautiful juice. And there was another bottle that you opened up. The name of that was... Uh, we had uh, Jolie Laid which from was, the Russian River. Right, which was astonishing. So this was uh, a, a new world wine that I just Correct. remember. Truffles on the nose, that subois, that sort of wet leaves and, you know, subtlety. and t- A beautiful wine. Let's back it up. How did you get into the wine business? I'm always curious as to what drives people in now. Well, I worked in the restaurant business since I was about 14. As a young kid, busting tables and doing everything. And... I was a wine buyer in a restaurant about 15 years ago in D.C., and they offered me, one of the companies I was buying wine from offered me a job as a salesperson, and I took it, and since then I moved to New York and had a few jobs here, but essentially that's 
was my entryway into the wine side of the wine business, which, you know, the restaurant side and the sales side, I think, are both the same business, but, you know, it's, it's different, of course. In sourcing new wineries or, or, or new wines, because you have a portfolio, you're an importer and a distributor. Right. I mean, is that correct as That's description? Right. Import yes. distributor. Um, how much time do you spend traveling, tasting? They come to you, you come to them. How does that work? What's the process? It's a pretty wide range of different, you know, situations that arise. We, you know, we have people, especially when we first started, we had a, between myself and my partner, Steve Duran and Bill Shambi, we had, you know, a lot of people that we knew in the business from our time. And we kind of pursued the people that we knew very well. And a lot of them came with us, but we don't necessarily go out, you know, pursuing wineries. We have people that refer them to us or they come to us from our reputation in the market. Or, you know, there's just, it happened to be this time in the wine business where there were so many people that were unhappy with their current situation for various reasons. But it was just one of those moments that was the perfect timing for us to start our company the way we did. Talk about the wine world a bit today, because before we went on, on live on the microphone, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, that this year, 2014, for the first time ever, America has become the largest end user of wine, consumer of wine. Right. Um, our per capita wine consumption keeps growing. We are not per capita number one. Of course, European countries still are, but in terms of gross aggregate volume, we are. Right. And the more important trend line is that number continues to go up right. and while Europe, it continues it to decline in Europe. That's yeah. right. So in France and Italy and Greece and Spain and Portugal, right. they're drinking less wine. And in America, it's up a couple of points, a couple of points every year. And it's a big population. Talk about what you see going on, because we could go on and on about it, but almost across generational lines. I, I meet kids in restaurants right. who are into their late 20s who are just so bloody savvy about wine. You see it every day. Talk about it. Well, for one thing, in America, we aren't limited by where we live, the wines that are available to us, especially in New York. We have wine, all the best wines from around the entire world are here at our fingertips to drink. In France, Spain, Italy, they have basically their own wines. And, 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 and what makes it worse, I mean, if you ask for Burgundy and Bordeaux, they'll tell you to go fuck yeah, yourself. If even, you ask for Sangiovese in the wrong part of Italy, they'll say we only pour Nebbiolo exactly. here or Alianico. They're, they're incredibly provincial. Exactly. And it would get boring. I mean, <laughs> it's not boring here. There's no limit to the amount of wines you can try and drink and buy and consume in New York in particular, but all of America. We have, you know, a wide range of things available to us, and it's a great learning experience. And younger people are finally starting to look at wine, I think, as as a beverage more than something that's so precious, which it's great to hold wine up on a pedestal, but I think it's really important to also, you know, look at it as, you know, in the in the lower price ranges as just a thing that we can drink and enjoy. We don't need to overthink it all the time, which we have done in this country for a long time. And that's changing really fast with the younger generation. They're really just looking for something that's good, well-made, thoughtful, and priced right. And that's a great thing, I think. Yeah, it's and, – and after I just chat on the Europeans for being so provincial, the flip side of that is they just have a tradition of a vin de table, whatever, of, a, of wine that works with the food right. from that region. If it grows together, it, it, it works together. There's a specificity. So for them, it's second nature. To right. us, as you said, it's a little bit more convoluted. Wine right. as a beverage for most Americans is something you had to come to. Right. It wasn't something your family grew up doing. Uh, very few of us live in wine-producing regions, so there was sort of an exotic to it that's now kind of going away yes i mean that's a good thing i think because at the end of the day the majority of the wine consumed is not you know these high-end exclusive wines the majority is just good stuff that some family is making that should be enjoyed as what it's meant to be not as something we need to overthink or have some dialogue about it should just taste good it should be enjoyed with food and, you know, another thing is in, in Europe, people start consuming wine when they're 15 years old. Yeah. In America, you know, parents don't share wine with their kids because it's illegal and all these other things. I mean, it's not a part of our culture right. 
in in our youths. Like, you know, I grew up as a kid. I didn't have my first glass of wine until I was 22. <laughs> so... I was lucky as an Italian-American kid like others. You know, my grandparents would always have those Sunday dinners. And you, we didn't drink wine, but it started out as wine mixed with water. But we were sort of at the table with the grown-ups drinking something like they were drinking right. uh, at a pretty young age. But it's right. One of the wines. So this, the, you, you poured that one wine for me because you were my generous table to my right, my neighbor at Pearl and Ash. Talk a bit about the changing wine scene. We can talk about California, but right. we should sort of... Br- stretch it out a little bit because California doesn't represent that much of the wine that's coming out of the States now. Talk a bit about some of the changes in California specifically because as I've mentioned on this show a million times, 98% of the wines that I have, I don't have a cellar, I've got a room with an air conditioner in it that, or uh, in, the win- in, the, in the winter the windows open, in the summer I've got an AC, but you know, there's hundreds of bottles in there and probably 98% of them come from Europe. Um, I'm not a big drinker of California wines. They're stylistically a little, you know, we can go on big and fruit driven and high alcohol and heavy. I don't think they work with food terribly well. Um, And they're expensive, but it's changing. Talk about it. Well, I think there's an interesting thing happening in America in general with the new generation of people. And of course, the old generation of the classics are still great and fantastic and you know, the people that have stuck to what they did, you know, 20 years ago and have stayed with that style and still make wines that are balanced and make sense from where they come. But there's, there, you know, in America, there's no laws or rules telling you what you grow, where you grow it. And people are now starting to actually be way more thoughtful about that. And there's a really cool movement happening in uh, in America, California, Oregon, Washington, with people, young people in ge- in general, that are that are really looking towards the vineyard more so than the winemaking process, which, you know, the most the the greatest wines in the world are have have been outside of America have been made in the same places for centuries, and regardless of who made the wine, that's not to take away from who from the importance of the winemaker because those people have always hired talented people to take that fruit and turn it into a great wine. But the the rock star in Europe was always the vineyard, not the person making the wine. And in California in particular, it became the person more than the, the vineyard. And that's changing, I think. And another way to describe that, and I completely agree, is uh, we, we talk about this on the show about great wine being made on the vine. Right. And at the crush, you're just not getting in the way. You're just doing the right thing. Yeah. At, harvest at the right time. Do the crush the right way. Get the fermentation started. Do whatever kind of fermentation you like. But you're not you, – you've the day that those grapes are picked is the day that you've almost – you're done making the wine in, in terms of how it's going to be a characteristic. Right. You're not playing with it after the fact. Yeah, you're not – Adding sugar, you're not acidifying, you're not deacidifying, whatever that's called. I can't remember the name, but and dealking and oaking de-alking and all the all like all the stuff because there's a like lot of additives that go into wine that people are not aware the, of. The, I think the worst thing in the wine business is when someone's trying to make a wine taste a certain way, and that's fading away quite a bit. I think you know the. You should you know if you have a warm vintage, your wine should have a little bit of higher alcohol. Right. You shouldn't de-alcohol it or spin it through the thing so that you can make the wine in a certain style because that's what you think people like at that moment like if you have a very warm vintage your wine's going to have higher alcohol if you have a cool vintage it's going to have lower alcohol and higher acid and messing with that i think is not the right picking at the right time is very important like you know if you have a really warm vintage and you pick it early that's great but you know, to, to mess around with it after the fruit's been picked, I think is making a product that isn't true to what the vintage the place gave you for that year. And, you know, the, the chasing trends also, like the low alcohol trend now, I think obviously California wines are going to have higher alcohol with than global, France. And, and we're seeing it everywhere. With global warming, we're seeing 
some of the hottest summers on record across every wine and right. region I know about. We're seeing and people in earlier. France love it, by the way. Like <laughs> Europeans love it because they have fully ripe grapes for the first for, right, right. When that used to be once every decade. Right. You know, that was happening on a semi-annual basis. Right. It's it's funny, but I think you're right. I think one of the one of the big differences between what was happening here and there was we over there they were making wines in, in the in the vineyards in right. on the vines with a very typicity of soil of microclimate. That's what grows there. And here we we're really playing around so much with the grapes after the crush. That's not to say that there aren't a lot of European producers that aren't guilty of that as well. Yeah, and we know, and I don't even go into, I mean, Burgundy, which is maybe one of the greatest of the greatest grapes. I mean, what happens there, I don't even want to talk about because it's really picky to grow Pinot Noir. It's really hard. It is. Sugar levels aren't great. Acid levels aren't great. And they are allowed to add, there's chapitalization, right. there's acid that goes in on the back end to balance it. It's, they play. But they had to chapitalize to meet the minimum alcohol standards quite often. Like, the government has their minimum alcohol standards, and, you know, that they were doing that, too. But, yes, everybody messes around in a bad vintage. It's a matter of how much you do it, and it's a matter of how much that's just become a recipe for how you want your wine to taste, rather than adjusting for something that could be unsellable or really difficult to sell. So you're tasting wines every day. What what has what have, what's come across your table that has you stoked lately from anywhere? I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily mention you know any particular producers, but in general the 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 overall movement that we were speaking about in California, Oregon, Washington, I think is amazing. Uh, the movement and there's some really great stuff in the Southern Hemisphere that unfortunately is being overlooked because places like Argentina, Chile, New Zealand, Australia in particular have have become known just for their inexpensive wines and there's some really cool stuff happening there that it's almost impossible to sell because you bring a $20 wholesale wine from New Zealand or Chile and the the average consumer is or average buyer is immediately like I can't sell that. Right. I need a ten dollar Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand, and you know they they've done it to themselves in many ways by taking something that was successful and running with it. But you know that's going to change. I think we're we're seeing it slowly changing, and you know the more younger people start coming into the buying positions and the positions of control over what the consumers get in front of them, it's changing because those people don't seem to care about what's happened historically. They, they taste the wine, they like it, they're going to find a way to sell it. And that's a really great thing. I was um, around the corner from Pearl and Ash. I don't know if you've been on Elizabeth, I think. There's this place called the Musket Room. Of course. Interesting restaurant. Um, the chef uh, is from New Zealand. A lot of the wine list is from New Zealand. And yes. to your point, I was just blown away. I mean, Chenin Blanc, Pinot Noir, really varietals you don't normally associate growing in there. They treated so well. Uh, You've been, you like? I've been, and we did not coordinate this, but the Chenin Blanc they have there by the glass, the Milton, is one of ours. <laughs> okay, and, oh, there we go. <laughs> and they sell it like crazy because, you know, they're behind it and they're promoting it. They're pouring it by the glass. They're not just putting it on the wine list and hoping that someone might try it. No, it's delicious. It's, but it's, it's, it's spread out from there also. Like other sommeliers and wine buyers have gone in there for dinner. And they promote it, and they try it, and they go, I need to have that Milton Chenin Blanc. And it's amazing. I mean, it's really What's great. that retail for? 25 bucks. So Chenin Blanc's a grape that normally I associate with Loire Valley. It's a great grape. Maybe one of the most underrated. I mean, everyone is second in love best, with Chardonnay. Second best white, third best white grape. Okay. Well, it's when everyone's top something. Second or third. Top three, for yeah, sure. Astonishing you know, like, in what it can do in all of its iterations from... Sweet to dry right. to in between to sparkling, uh, and again in the Loire Valley it thrives under a lot of different guises. But yeah, this was one I had that was New World that was I was just blown away by that wine. That was delicious. Yeah, so that's one of yours. Yeah, and James Milton is you know one of the he's actually friends with the guy that you met at Pearl Nash, Robert Eden from Chateau Maris. Okay, they they're really good friends. They're huge into the biodynamics, like, but you know he doesn't he doesn't care what. Might sell. He doesn't even make Sauvignon Blanc in New Zealand. He 
he's in Gisborne and he doesn't grow Sauvignon Blanc. Well, because he doesn't care what good. Well, the market. Of, he doesn't care what the market is asking right. for. And unfortunately, you know, I mean, the Sauvignon Blanc explosion is ebbing, and there's a lot of vineyards going out of business there down are. there. But, but there's there are big companies willing and able to take it up immediately because they don't have enough supply for Sauvignon Blanc. But that's not to say that Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand isn't perfectly valid and great. There's just so much commercial product coming that. You know, it's it's hurt their overall ability to promote some of the really great Pinot Noirs, really great Rieslings, really great Pinot Gris. Yeah, there was a Riesling on that list, too, that was amazing. Amazing. Yeah. They have fun. some really great stuff happening there, but it's overshadowed by the huge business of their Sauvignon Blanc. So it reminds me a little bit. I was just in Portugal my second time there. I went on just a wine trip last year. A group of us toured a bunch of vineyards, seven or eight days worth. I thought I have to come back and film. I've got to come back with cameras because, I mean, I, there's, I and I, I, I've been everywhere around Portugal, never to Portugal, which is insane. So I've been mm-hmm. France and Spain to Alvarino right. to Rishi Spicious. I've been below it, above it, but I never spent any time in Portugal, which is crazy. I love the coastline. I love the beach. I love surfing. I love the sand. I love eating seafood, and I love the wines that come off of those coastal areas and the wines that are inland up the Douro. And I think that Portugal made the mistake a while back of just sort of dumping these really insipid Alvarinhos into this market that sell for a dollar or two euros. Right. And yet I was, I mean, the wines that I was tasting there from the north to the south, including Alvarinhos, to Vino Verdes, to the, the wines in the, uh, in, the, um, in the Birada, I mean, they had incredible sparkling wines. Do you have any Portuguese wines in your portfolio? We really, we have port, of course. Of course. You know, and we have a dry wine that's made from one of our port producers. But Yeah, they're we, making more, more and more table wines out of those field blends. Right, which is Juarez and Altano. But we had tried with a really high-quality Portuguese wine from the Douro that, you know, slate soils, high-altitude vineyards, 70-year-old vines, about $20 wholesale. And it was very difficult. And, you know, a big, unfortunately, a big part of the problem in Portugal is the grape varieties are so hard to pronounce. And, I was which so is, spot- I hate to admit that, but it's the truth when the consumer can't fe- read. And everything's field blends. Right. So unlike knowing that, you know, it's going to be, if I'm, you know, the usual suspects. If I'm in Italy, it's A, B, C, D, E grapes right. that I know. If I'm in France, down south, I know. If it's La Loire, I know. I know what these are. Right. You get to Portugal where every wine's probably going to have four varietals in it right. or more. And the, the I had never heard of these before. Right. Well, I mean, Portugal has one of the greatest histories in the wine-growing world. And their vineyards are amazing. Their soil, their terroir. They certainly have the potential to become a major player in the wine business. But I haven't seen, you know, quite often it takes a person to go to that country like, you know, people have done in Spain and Germany and Italy and to make that country for them by going in, becoming an importer and by promoting those wines in a larger way. And we haven't seen that yet in Portugal. Mm -hmm. Interesting point. But the potential's there. I mean, we as a company are working with Greek wines right now as a national importer. Another... Off the beaten track, every time I've had them, I mean, I remember the first time I had Santorini's and that Black Volcanic Soil. I'm like, where? You just didn't see them on wine lists. They weren't around. And it was also to the point you made about Portugal, a lot of these very funny sounding varietals right. that I can't pronounce. But Right. So you're bringing in wine from Greece now. We're, we're bringing in about uh, 10 producers from Greece. We're a national importer for them. And we have a guy, that Sotiris Bafidis, who is sourcing the wines for us. And we're promoting Greece. I mean, you know, the, the sales are going. Well, they're they're increasing locally. We're having a little harder time outside of New York. I mean, you know, New York's always way more open to right. doing a wide range of right. different things. And but the, the sales are going great. And I, I think you know, obviously, the next place that's going to be a big hit, you know, is going to in Europe anyway, is going to be somewhere in Eastern Europe. It's going to be Greece, or it could be Portugal. But we're we're making a bet on Greece right now, and we we really like the wines and the price, the quality price ratio is great. Yeah, great great juice. Thanks it's, so much for coming on. But Chris Dessler has been my guest. Verity Wines, V E R I T Y. Um, I always say this to folks: if you're 
if you're in a wine store and you kind of have an idea what you like in terms of varietal or country of origin or style and you don't know the label, spin it around and look who to see the importer is. It's usually... I mean, that's, it's kind of what I do when I'm confused. And if it's Kermit Lynch or Wagant or Rosenthal or Verity or... Uh, Dresler. Uh, yeah, there's about a couple of dozen where I just say, I know these guys' portfolio. This is going to be sub. Paul Anner, it's going to be good juice. Thanks so much for Absolutely. coming. Absolutely. Continued success and... Uh, Thanks for the great wine you shared across the table at Pearl Thanks for having me. Hey, folks, we're going to tie it up here. Another hour's gone by. Let me see who's on next week. If I have anybody booked, I always do. Oh, yeah. We're going to talk about fresh morels. One of my favorite mushroom foragers, Eugenia Bone, just came back from the West Coast. and She sent me a picture of um, what appear to be about 25 pounds of morels that she just foraged in a bag. I want some of that. We're also going to do a highlight. We're going to get some of the... Um, Pit bosses from the barbecue teams that are coming to New York next week. Big Apple Barbecue is next week, not this weekend, June 7th and 8th in New York City. It's a great event. Some of the best pitmasters in America haul their rigs through the Holland Tunnel, the Lincoln Tunnel, across the GW Bridge. Wherever they get them here, they bring their, their fuel with them. They set up camp on Friday, smoke overnight on a Saturday, and it gives New Yorkers a chance to have some of the best barbecue you'll ever have in your life right here in Madison Square Park. So we'll have some of those guests on. I don't know who they'll be, but stay tuned for that next week. See you then. HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.